Hello, everyone, and welcome to an evening with Joel Salatin. We'll start with some energy. My name is Brian McKillips, and I am the board president of Project Peace. Uh, Project Peace is the umbrella organization that is sponsoring tonight's event. Um, I know you didn't come to see me, so um, I'm going to be very brief in my remarks, but I wanted to take about uh, five minutes or so first um, to recognize the people who put this event together, secondly to tell you just a little bit about Project Peace, and thirdly just to give you a few uh, details about tonight. So uh, first, this evening is the result of an enormous amount of vision and hard work from a uh, relatively small team of people. And uh, if, if you're in the room, if you could stand up while I read off your name, uh, that would be great. Tara Ringhofer, Susie Shin, Mark Frisbee, Peter Todd, Jay Holacek, Angie Needles, and Betsy Johnson. This, uh, this team of people um, developed the concept for the event. They, uh, they garnered all the support uh, of the key stakeholders to bring this together, and they put in many, many, many hours of hard work uh, to make this night come to fruition. So uh, if they didn't do this, Joel wouldn't be here and we wouldn't be here. So let's give them a, a big round of applause. I'd also like to uh, recognize the generous support of, uh, of other supporters here, uh, Kaiser Permanente, uh, Chipotle, and the Berkeley Ecology Center. So this, uh, this night has come together um, in an amazing way, and we're so pleased about it that uh, we, Project Peace is going to coin this the first annual Project Peace Speaker Series. So we'll be doing something similar again next year, and so you can sign up on our mailing list to, um, to get notified about that. So secondly, I'll, I'll be brief. Uh, I want to tell you just a little bit about Project Peace, and uh, we'll bring up a couple of things behind me. Um, first, Project Peace is uh, an organization that uh, really activates volunteers and resources out of the churches of the East Bay to connect to social service agencies who are experts in what they're doing. Um, so you can think about it in kind of a supply and demand model. On the demand side, we all know of the social needs that are out there in terms of uh, environmental sustainability, uh, social welfare, public education, things like this. And for each one of those areas, there is a, an expert social agency. But inevitably, they're short on resources and volunteers. And on the supply side, that's where Project Peace steps in, is that we're able to use uh, some uh, unique methodology to activate volunteers from the East Bay Church community to meet those needs uh, and partner with, with pre-vetted organizations to then make a large impact and accelerate the impact in our communities. So um, uh, one brief example, and, and you'll look at the next slide, is uh, we work with many, many partners, but Claremont, High, uh, Claremont Middle School is an Oakland uh, public school that's, that's had some uh, performance uh, issues and struggling for quite a, a long time. And, but in that school, there is now a PTA and an administration uh, who are committed to turning that around. And they have a vision and they have a plan, uh, but they need manpower in order to materialize that vision. And Project Peace has stepped in to be able to help in a couple of ways. First, we create these days of peace where we'll have more than 100 people show up on a Saturday and do an extreme makeover style event where there's painting, cleaning lockers, organizing uh, closets, and making a huge impact towards the vision that they're having. We also help create a sustainable garden uh, in the schoolyard, and most recently we've, we've helped staff a Saturday school to tutor the kids. So that's one small example of the way we're impacting our community around us. And we'd love for you to be a part of it. We'll give you two quick ways on the next slide here. First is we're hosting another day of peace at Claremont Middle School and uh, LeConte Elementary on February 26th. And uh, that's open to everyone. You don't have to be a part of a church congregation to come 
see that, you can sign up on our website or over here at our table. The second way is we want to connect with other churches in the East Bay area. And if, you, uh, if you're part of a congregation, we'd love to connect with you and your church leadership to talk more about this. So finally, um, a few details for tonight. If you have a cell phone or any other noise-making machine, be sure that's turned off right now. Um, We'll also have um, afterwards uh, the booth set up that uh, that you can come and look at again, as well as uh, books, uh, and we'll tell you more about that later. Uh, But now I'm pleased to invite on stage uh, someone to introduce Joel Salatin, He's a distinguished guest and a really a good friend of our community. Among his many accolades and awards, he's the John S. and James L. Knight Professor of Journalism at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. He's the director of the Knight Pro- Program in Science and Environmental Journalism. And he's the author of several beloved books, which I have a hunch you've read. Um, Botany of Desire, The Omnivore's Dilemma, In Defense of Food, and Food Rules. And really, he's the primary reason I get a farm box delivered to my house every week. Please welcome Michael Pollan. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Is this microphone on? Can you hear me? Good. Well, you're all in for a real treat this evening. Um, I, I mean, I've been on the farm that you're going to be introduced to uh, on that screen, and it's uh, something really profound and also highly entertaining. Um, I want to tell two quick stories. Rather than a conventional introduction, I want to tell two quick stories about Joel and my relationship to Joel to give you a sense of the man that you're about to meet. The first is kind of an embarrassing one, uh, at least as it reflects onto me, and the second is a story about an epiphany. First one, my first conversation with Joel was in uh, the winter, early, early spring winter of 2001. I was doing an article for the New York Times Magazine on the industrialization of organic agriculture, and I wanted a farm, a sustainable farmer, who would give me some really kind of acid quotes about, you know, what was happening to organics. And I found my way to uh, this man in, in uh, Swope, Virginia, named Joel Salatin, who uh, I was assured had some salty things to say on the subject of corporate organic agriculture. And I called him, and I got wonderful quotes. Uh, he is the most quotable farmer in America, among many other things. Um, and at the end of the conversation, uh, I said, you know, God, I've heard all about your pastured chickens, and I, I, I've never had a pastured chicken, and I'd really like to try one. And he was like, well, sure, you know, come on by, and I'll give you a pastured chicken. And I said, no, no I'm calling from Connecticut, and uh, I was wondering if you could send me one. And he said, <laughs> and he said uh, no, sorry, we only sell locally. And I thought he just wasn't set up for shipping. And I said, well, you know, I can give you a FedEx number and I can have a guy come by with a a box and some dry ice and styrofoam. And he said, no, no, no. This is the embarrassing part. You don't understand. Um, (laughs) I take this local thing very seriously. I don't believe in shipping meat across the country. And I was that was just one of those moments. All right, I get it. And I realized then that this guy was dead serious about his principles, he walked the talk, and local, of course, was perhaps the highest of principles to him. Um, so he basically said, if I wanted a chicken, I had to come down to Swope and get it. And I did. Uh, I managed to wrangle an assignment uh, with another magazine and came down there about a year later and saw a place, and I won't go into much detail because you're going to see it for yourself, that was unlike any farm I had ever seen. The word farm poorly describe this very intricate organism, Um, you know, five or six different species, kind of carefully choreographed on uh, 500 acres of of, uh, rolling hills and woods. And um, he told me about all the different animals he had. He had cattle and and chickens and pigs and rabbits and turkeys. And I asked him uh, a very simple question. I said, well, all right, you've got a diversified farm. What do you call yourself? Are you a cattle rancher? Are you a chicken farmer? Are you a a rabbit hustler? Um, And he said, no, no, I'm a grass farmer. 
And I had never heard that term before. I'm a grass farmer. I mean, why would you bother? Um, nobody eats grass. You really can't sell grass. Um, but he explained that it was the, 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 the stage, the, 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 the ground of this system was grass. Grass was how solar energy entered the system. Um, grass was the keystone species of the whole system. And, you know, as, when I got there, I really like animals, and I was really eager to meet the cattle and meet the chickens and the pigs. And he said, no, we're not going to do that yet. First, we're going to meet the grass. And it was a beautiful spring day. It was like, I don't know, end of March in Virginia. And so he brought me into a pasture and insisted I get down on my belly. And we both got down on our bellies, and he introduced me to the different species, all the different species in a square foot of pasture. And he showed me the, the, the worm castings and how springy it was and, and introduced me to the fescues and the clover and, and the, the ryegrass and explained what was going on underfoot because all the action was underground. And he explained something to me um, that really stuck with me because it, it actually had a profound impact not just on my understanding of food and farming, but how I conceive of the whole, our whole relationship to the environment. You know, you, you may hear people say sometime, oh yeah, that Joel Salatin, he's the guy in Omnivore's Dilemma. That book really made him. But in fact, the opposite is true. He made Omnivore's Dilemma by giving me the kind of philosophical inspiration um, that knitted together. And it all came when we were lying on our bellies on that, on that pasture. Uh, and he explained what happens, which I didn't understand. Maybe, maybe you do, maybe you don't. When, when a, a, a cow comes through and gives a haircut to a pasture, and you've got these grasses that are about this long, cows spend one day, gets reduced to this long, and what happens underground, though, is the significant thing, because the plant, to correct the imbalance between its roots and its shoots, um, essentially sheds a comparable amount of root mass just kills it off. And that root, because it's trying to balance its root-shoot ratio, and that, that, uh, those dead roots are then set upon by the, by the worms, the nematodes, all the microbes underground, and they essentially digest it um, and turn it into new soil. That's how soil is created. I had no idea from the bottom up. And this is how the six feet of, of topsoil in the, in the Great Plains was created. This was a revelation to me. Because what did it mean? It meant that the whole kind of zero-sum idea we hold in our heads about our relationship to nature, the idea that when we get what we need, nature is diminished, that it's a process of subtraction, basically, to take food from nature, just like energy or entertainment, all the different uses we have of nature. But this system proposed something very different. Because if the, the grazing of the animals, who of course were going to become our food, was actually building the fertility of the soil, what that meant was at the end of every season, Joel was taking tens of thousands of really good, clean food from this land. And there was actually... More fertility, not less. More biodiversity, not less. More soil, not less. It was not a zero-sum game. And how did, what made this possible? It was those grass plants, which he refers to as his solar collectors. Um, and I realized then, for the first time, that there really is a free lunch in nature. And that, of course, is solar energy passing into the food system through grass. And that's the kind of beautiful system that uh, Joel's going to tell you exactly how it works. Um, Joel is the, is, the, is the poet, the chef, the, the great preparer of nature's free lunch. And he does it in this amazing cafe uh, called Polyface Farm. Joel Salatin, please welcome. Thank you all very much. It's really a privilege to be here. Thank you, Michael. Um, I think we can all just go home now. Uh, what he's just described, folks, and I think it's uh, fitting to say it at the outset of this, 
He's just described grace. Grace. Powerful thing. Okay, we've got two things to do tonight. Um, the people who organized this just decided they wanted to hear two short talks instead of one longer talk. So, I'm going to try to condense my uh, 90-minute stem winder into 30 minutes. And I don't have a clicker. So, we're going to have a good time here um, starting with the slides and we're going to go through this uh, very rapidly. But it will give you an overview of what we do at Polyface Farm and then we'll take a few questions and then we're going to go right into a, um, a, a Christian environmental ethic presentation and take some questions after that and get you out of here hopefully by about nine. Um, okay, are we ready in the back? Yes, you ready? Okay. Uh, we haven't worked out all of our cues here, you know, I haven't decided whether to go like this or whatever, but we're going we're gonna to go. All right, the farm is Polyface Farm, the farm of many faces. Dad used to say we're not just two-faced, we're many-faced. We're in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley, which of course was the breadbasket of the Confederacy during the War of Northern Aggression. Next picture. <laughs> and if you come to our farm, you will see bioterrorism at work. Because our free-range, our pastured chickens, of course, commiserate with robins and red-winged blackbirds and indigo buntings and take our viruses and diseases to the science-based, uh, environmentally controlled Tyson chicken houses and threaten the planet's food supply. Next. So, we come to this. See, all my life, I feel like I've been brain damaged because I'm like most of the people here, a product of... Uh, extended Greco-Roman Western reductionist, fragmented, compartmentalized, systematized, disconnected, democratized, individualized, parts-oriented thinking. And there's an equally valid worldview from the East, which is it's about wholes. We're all relatives. We're all related. And the whole is worth more than the sum of the parts. And the East brings us ethics and morality and answers the question why the West is sitting here trying to be uh, uh, answering the question how. And both of them actually are valid. If we, all we do is sit here and say why, 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 we'll never do anything. And if all we do is ask how, 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 we do things, but they might be the wrong things. And so it's the symbiosis of these two that we'll look at next uh, throughout this presentation. Um, so the farm here is uh, 550 acres, 450 acres of woodland that goes up the uh, Allegheny Mountains there behind the farm. Open land, forest land, woodland. Yes, thank you. Keep going. And But be, with all the environments, the, the single most important component is the grass. We are, after all, grass farmers. We are, but we are using the grass as a solar collector, as a perennial regenerative, regenerative soil building solar collector. Go ahead. Now, where everything is a, is a circle, it's hard to know where to break in, so we'll start with the forest and go progressively through the other things, hopefully very quickly. Uh, so, just so you know my pigeonhole, to be perfectly honest with everybody and transparent, I'm all about transparency. You want to know, where's this guy coming from? Well, I'm a Christian libertarian environmentalist capitalist lunatic. And the capitalist part of me says, how do we steward the woodland? We steward the woodland by creating value, just like we do with wedding rings and jewelry. Why do we steward them and shepherd them is because they're valuable. And so we do cut a lot of uh, firewood in, in the woods. Go ahead. And the logs we bring out. Go ahead. Uh, with our multiple-use equipment. Go ahead. Bring them down to our sawmill, which is the ultimate information-based type of infrastructure because it's downsized, restructured, and miniaturized, like the 120-pound secretary has been replaced by a 4-ounce mail router. Uh, a la Kevin Kelly, uh, editor of Wired Magazine. Okay, so this is this is the new restructured kind of thing, the value add, the biomass that's in the woodlot. This is the uh, chipper that we use. We stack all the branches with the butts facing one way. Dad always called this our communist machine because it makes them all the same size. Go ahead. And then that goes into the hay shed. Go ahead. In the wintertime, when the, when the uh, soil is dormant, uh, stop right there a second. So you see the cows here on the left, the hay on the right. That's, by the way, that's stored biomass. That hay is just solar dry grass. See, when I talk about grass, we're all brain damaged in here generally because when we think grass, we just think a lawn. 
Most, many of us haven't walked through grass, you know, this tall, all right? But grass, if left to reach its full physiological expression, will get this tall. Laura Ingalls Wilder in A Little House on the Prairie uh, talks about grass that's 12 feet tall, and you can go see that at the University of uh, Nebraska at Lincoln right now. But uh, you see the cows on the left, the hay on the right, and we're just putting the, uh, the hay there in front of them in the wintertime when the soil is dormant and all this, this bugs and critters and worms and mycorrhizae and azotobacter and gibberellins and actinomycetes and all these things are, are in the soil dormant during the winter months. Go ahead. Go ahead. And so, um, so this very simple structure becomes a protection for that winter-generated nutrient. Go ahead which needs a carbonaceous diaper to soak up all of these nutrients that are highly volatile. If they get dry, they want to vaporize. If they get wet, they want to soak into the groundwater. And so we use carbon and... Whoa, whoa. Uh, okay. Fast, but not too fast. Okay. Um, and so we go into these uh, hay boxes with pulleys on them. Go ahead. So that as the bedding, as this carbonaceous diaper builds up underneath the animals, we can keep raising these boxes. Go ahead. So the cows aren't standing on their heads in the spring. Uh, it just lifts so that as this, as this bedding builds, the cows just rise up with it. So that in the spring, by the time we get to spring, we've got this three to four foot deep carbonaceous diaper full of uh, carbon and manure and urine and all these nutrients. And the cows have been eating out of this nice clean hay box. Go ahead. And as we build it, we add corn to it. And the corn then is, is uh, all mixed into the bedding with the cow hooves. And this bedding, of course, because of the pressure of the cows, is anaerobic. So it's, it's fermenting. You know, that whole thing just ferments in there. All right. Then when the cows come out, go ahead. In the spring, we put in the piggerators. All pigs have a sign on their forehead, will work for corn. Go ahead, and the pigs seek that corn and aerate, oxygenate, you know, like aerobic dance, you know, like Jane Fonda, like left, 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 always left, left, left. So you got, you got these pigs in here aerating that deep bedding, and of course, we're not asking the pigs to do something they don't like to do. This is hog heaven. This is fully appreciating, hold it right there, this is fully appreciating the pigness of the pig. And it allows a habitat that allows the animals to do the work. So now suddenly these pigs aren't just bacon and pork chops. They are co-laborers, fellow team members in this great land healing ministry. Completely changes the spiritual and emotional relationship that we have with them. See, the pigs don't need their oil chains. They don't need spare parts. You know, they don't need minimum wage. What a retirement program. When you're done with them, you eat them, you know. So there's no social insecurity. When you use appreciating animals to do your work, suddenly the infrastructure appreciates and therefore becomes size neutral because you don't have to get so big to recapitalize the infrastructure that rots, rusts, and depreciates. Next picture. So the pigs finally get done. This looks like something out of a bath, you know, toil and trouble and the you know, witches over the brew. But, but this, is the, this is the heat of the compost uh, coming up. When the pigs get done, go ahead. Uh, this is what we're... After, you know, I don't know what these cow pies look like in California, but ours have these dollar bills on them. Um, the, neat, the neat thing is the IRS hasn't learned how to tax these yet. We can just stockpile them and there's no place on the, on the code to do it. See, the whole deal is to take advantage of the resources that are here. See, we don't have a problem with resources. We don't have a problem with capital. We don't have a problem with markets. What we've got in our culture is not a lack of resources or will or, or ability or knowledge. What we've got is constipation of imagination. And so as we get more tools in our box and see more opportunities, then we capitalize on this. Go ahead. So then when the compost is all done, go ahead. Just just flick right on through here. Yeah, we, we're, we're putting uh, compost in the PTO for spreaders, some mineral, and we go out and spread it after the soil has, has uh, awakened in the spring so that it can eat all of these good materials. And then when it's all cleaned out, we throw poultry netting around there, and we can raise ready-to-lay pullets for all of the uh, urban Dilbert Cubicle refugees who are moving to the country with their residential estates and, and uh, wanting to farm a little bit. See, 
um, we've been for the last century trying to figure out how to get our farm products to the to market. Now that the market's coming to us, the farmers say, we don't want you to come out here. But I've learned that it's very uh, a lot easier to help a person uh, get uh, to pick their uh, billfold out of their pocket if I'm hugging them than if I'm pushing them away. So we... We, we just accept these people to come on out in the community and buy the stuff. All right, so the pigs are doing the bigger rating. Go ahead. And when they get done, they go out, go ahead, uh, into pig pastures that are roughly half-acre pastures. Go ahead. Using local GMO-free uh, grain. We don't use any genetically modified organisms. Into electric fence paddocks that they vacate and go, just keep on flipping on through here. And they get to gamble, choose their salad bar, and express their, they sing opera sometimes too, and, um, and, and, and now stop right there. And they express their, they're out there um, eating the salad bar, choosing the grain they want, and um, being pigs. Now, when they're there, they do some plowing, which of course a pig loves to do. And this disturbance creates a freshened up period for the ecology to, to succeed for new species to germinate. This disturbance factor is very, very uh, important. We have this notion today, and Michael alluded to it, uh, we have this notion that the best thing we can do for the planet is just to annihilate all the humans. What we're here for is to massage and exercise the ecology to greater heights of solar collection and biomass regeneration for decomposition than would happen in a static setting. And that's what these pigs do with this periodic disturbance, just like you would do if you were going to plant a vegetable garden. You'd have to get a spade and a hoe. You'd have to do a little bit of disturbance to make the ecology succeed to a higher level of, of, of productive capacity. So the pigs do that. Now, you can't do that every day or you have erosion and you have a, it, it's all about timing. So this just happens a couple of days a year to move that succession forward using the pigs as a landscape masseuse. See, this is, this is exercised ecology, all right? And gradually, go ahead, what you end up with, using the pigs as a management tool, go ahead, see this wonderful diversified, and stop, and you get this, what I call my biological cathedral. We've never planted a seed, never applied a bag of fertilizer. This is just 15 years of very carefully managed periodic disturbance to allow a whole new generation and set of plants to germinate and move the successional uh, uh, ecology forward through a freshening up. Now, when the pigs are done here, go ahead. Then they walk right next door into the forest where we use little nylon uh, rope as a poor boy uh, insulator with a single strand of electric fence and a, and a computer microchip uh, electric fence energizer. We can encircle uh, five-acre paddocks. Go ahead. Turn the pigs in there. The pigs then seek the acorns and the starchy roots that were that, that are in the. Whoa, 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 hold on. Um, that are in that that are in that forest. Okay, and um, and and they create a disturbance in the forest. Eat the bugs that would attack the oak trees, and they open up this lower canopy so that it, instead of being a sterile leaf litter, generates a whole new generation of leafy photosynthetic or pho photo. Yeah photosynthetic, photovoltaic, yeah, um, plants, okay, uh, you know, uh, legumes, forbs, weeds, um, grasses that create now a totally, uh, a second tier of biomass collection so that there's more sun energy being converted to biomass than there was before the pigs were in there. The pigs are that successional management scheme to move that forward. Go ahead. Now, when the pigs are done then, go ahead, then they just walk home. <laughs> and as Michael Pollan said, an omnivorous dilemma, at polyphase, the animals have a wonderful life and just one bad day. All right. <laughs> go ahead. Next picture. Now we go to the pasture. And in the pasture... We're looking at, at this pasture and realizing that throughout the world, the great uh, soil building in the world was created by herbivores and perennials with very carefully managed uh, techniques. Next picture. So these prairie polycultures, 
when you look at herbivores throughout the world, there's three M's. Uh, I'll properly alliterate these so you can remember them. The first thing is these herbivores are moving. They don't stay in the same place very often. They don't stay in the same place even for a day. They just, they just move on to the next spot. Secondly, they're mobbed up for predator protection. You know, the, think about the, the wildebeest on the Serengeti, the Cape Buffalo in Botswana. And then the third thing is they're mowing. They're not eating dead cows. They're not eating chicken manure or grain or silage. Okay? They're mowing. So we've got moving, mobbing, and mowing. And the, that herbivore then becomes the restart button for that solar collector. Without the herbivore, that solar collector would just grow up, get old, turn brown, and just oxidize. And just, it wouldn't do anything. So the cow is the pruner is the pruner that, that hits the restart button to move to, to make that, um, that grass, that solar collector, restart its uh, uh, fast biomass accumulation again. So, looking at these three principles, moving, mobbing, mowing, in nature, we simply cut around that natural template, that pattern, and we lay it down on our commercial domestic production model, say, how can we duplicate this? Go ahead. So, we move the cows, go ahead, every day, to a fresh pasture paddock using high-tech electric fencing becomes our steering wheel, our brake, and our accelerator on that four-legged portable sauerkraut vat. Electric fence is very simple. A light footprint. Go ahead. This is permanent fence. There's a little uh, computer chip uh, energizer with a with a 12-volt uh, battery, and you've got your fence there. It's all very simple. Go ahead. The cows get very used to, to being handled all the time. So they, they become very docile. You can move them. Go ahead. So every day we are making and unmaking the, the paddock size to give them one day's plateful of, of forage each day. Now, when you come to a, um, a stagnant time, like in a drought or in the wintertime, well, what do you do? So we stockpile forage ahead of them. And uh, then we let them into it strategically. This is 100 head on a quarter acre. This uh, sanctuary here is probably just a little bit bigger than a quarter, about the same size as a quarter acre. So 100 head in a, in a place the size of this sanctuary. Go ahead. And so uh, here you can see where they've been, where they've just gone, the electric fence right there where I am. You can see where they, uh, what it looked like yesterday, what it looked like 24 hours later. You can't walk through that. that. A mouse has to carry lunch in a knapsack to get across it. But that is, that is the kind of, of one-day disturbance, and this only happens... Two, at the most, maybe three days a year are all that the cows are on a given spot so that that grass can go through its sigmoid curve of expression to really mobilize all its capacity to reach its phenotypical biomass possibility. Go ahead. Next picture. So that cow, again, is that restart button. Go ahead. So just to drive the point home, the upper picture is Cape Buffalo and lions in Botswana, South Africa. Bottom picture is cows and electric fence in Swope, Virginia. You get the biomimicry? All right, good. Now, uh, here we are in February. Top picture with 80 dry cows on half an acre. You can see the, the snow. Uh, bottom picture, 350 head on two acres in August. Same principles, different times of the year. Go ahead. So here we are getting ready to move 350 into another paddock. You can see where they were today. You can see, kind of see the line there, the cross fence. So here we go. We open the cross fence. They come into tomorrow, to, to tomorrow's paddock. You can see they're vacating. Go ahead. And you notice the, the wildness and the, and, and the way it looks like, you know, the flow of a, a wildebeest on the Serengeti. That's what, we're, that's what we're after is this biomimicry. There they are running into a, a new paddock. Go ahead. And there's what 350 on two acres looks like for 24 hours. Okay. Now the cows need water. So what are you going to do? You're going to give them a you know, toilet bowl, let them turn into hippopotami and pee out the back end, drink in the front end. If you drank out of your toilet bowl, you'd probably have worms too. So we do an amazing thing. We put water in a pipe and deliver it to them. And so these are, uh, these are just tanks of water here with full flow valves. Go ahead, just run on through this. Full flow valves so the water comes in rapidly, nice and clean. Very simple systems. Go ahead. A mineral box. Go ahead. 
And then here's a leased farm. So we lease about five farms. Landowners are seeing this land healing. are saying, could you come and heal our farm? So we now lease several farms. This is the first year. You can see how thin it is and weedy it is. But you can see where they've vacated on the left, gone to the right. They eat everything because cows, see, they have a palatability index just like the rest of us. And this, this, this what we call um, mob grazing, this um, intensive mob grazing, they eat everything. Okay, mob stocking, herbivorous, solar conversion, lignified carbon sequestration, fertilization. And if everybody in America that had cows would do that, we would sequester all the carbon that's been emitted since the beginning of the industrial age in fewer than 10 years. Okay. It's really very, it really is that simple. But it's not simple when you have subsidies encouraging corn, when you have all sorts of policy to make sure we have cheap fuel so that it masks the true cost of growing grain and transporting it. And when you have sweetheart deals for big business that allows them to get by with polluting our waterways and stinking up the neighborhoods, and okay, I mean, it's not simple, simple. You see what I mean? It is simple, but then it's not simple. Okay, so this is one of our rental farms. This is one of our most exciting type of projects right now. We have a former apprentice who is going, has gone over here. Uh, he asked us if he could start a herd share, a raw milk herd share dairy. Fine. So this is his herd of uh, Guernsey cow, Jersey cows. He's up to now 20 head. Go ahead. And this is his uh, portable parlor um, on a hay wagon chassis with a, with a uh, generator in the back and a milk pumper. And there are the cows. He moves it right into the paddock where the cows are so they don't have to walk anywhere. Milks into a bucket milker. He's 21 years old, full-time farmer with no overhead, very almost no debt. And he's providing this wonderful uh, material. Uh, germinating young farmers. See, that's what we're about. Okay, go ahead. Very, very simple system. Go ahead. So the cows like shade, so we have a 1,000-square-foot portable loafing shelter instead of shade trees so we can move the droppings around. Go ahead, keep moving. Uh, ponds, water becomes an issue, so we built a lot of ponds. Go ahead. We gravity feed that through a network of five miles of water line to build forgiveness and redemption of the landscape uh, with irrigation if we need to. Go ahead, to keep the grass growing and keep converting solar energy into biomass even when it's dry. Now, those cows drop a calling card and say, well, how did nature sanitized behind these cows before, you know, Merck Pharmaceuticals, Pfizer and Pfizer and whatever came along. And guess what we see? Go ahead. We see birds. Birds follow the herbivores in nature. And so we have the eggmobiles with 800 layers that, um, that, that follow the cows. Go ahead. And these are portable hen houses where they just, you know, walk up. Uh, go ahead. Keep moving. Keep going. Yeah, it's got slatted floor, nest boxes. It's all just a portable hen house. See the chickens? And they lay um, uh, tens of thousands of dollars worth of eggs as a byproduct of the pasture sanitation system. And the chickens, of course, they're eating the grubs and the worms out of the cow patties, eating the newly exposed grasshoppers and crickets, and turning those into delicious eggs. Um, go ahead. Which we gather every day about 4 o'clock. And um, these eggmobiles come in different shapes, different sizes, different applications, but it's always the same principle, the birds following the herbivores and the birds being the pasture sanitizer. The question is, stop right there, the question is, which one would you rather live next to? And what we've done is with industrial agriculture is we've created such a repugnant, a repugnant kind of uh, um, structure that we don't want people living next to it. We want people to live next to it. Go ahead. So now we're going to uh, the eggmobiles for pasture sanitation. This is the Feathernet pasture egg production. Go ahead. These are portable hoop houses using high-tech electric fencing that has an electronic just keep zipping on through uh, filaments in it to keep the bears and the coyotes out, keep the chickens in. We encircle a quarter acre, make a contiguous circle, open it up at the waist. And then we're going to move that right through. The chickens will walk right into the next paddock. We'll back up. We'll pull everything through. The chickens are already walking into the next paddock, and we just move this right around the field from spot to spot. Go ahead. This is, and, and there's the infrastructure. Now, this could be done in the developing world, undeveloped world, uh, for hygiene. All right, this is the new Millennium Feathernet. 
Um, this is, again, a quarter acre with a thousand layers in it with a scissor truss design. Again, it's a skid structure. The chickens walk up. We use all the vertical space. It's even better than the hoop houses. This is called surround sound here when you walk up in here. But, um, but the, 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 this, this uses the vertical space and gets this uh, more chicken-friendly and more hygienic, even in a smaller footprint. This is all about design. Go ahead. And, um, and then this is, the, this is another big hoop structure. Go ahead. Uh, and, of course, we like to use, you know, uh, redundancy with predator protection. So this is Michael, the archangel, guarding the chickens. Um, and it's beautiful. Go ahead. Go ahead. Keep, yeah. Into the wintertime then. Whoop. Hold up. In the wintertime, um, that's okay. Go ahead to the next one. Uh, we can add, we, we bring them into a hoop house, into a tall tunnel, so they can stay warm because we get several feet of snow every winter and it's been cold. So the rabbits are up above, the chickens and the pigs are there. So you've got all this, this multispeciation in one uh, structure using uh, vertical cubic feet instead of just linear floor feet, but none of the densities of any one of the species is at such a density to kick in virulent pathogenicity. This confuses the pathogens, and confused pathogens are good. Go ahead. So when all this comes out, we can grow vegetables into that bedding that's now been debugged by the chickens and composted by the aeration of the pigs and the chickens. Gives you wonderful vegetables for thousands of dollars of byproduct after the animals come out in the spring. So you can use the infrastructure multiple ways. Go ahead. Just keep moving right on through. Yeah, the tur turkey's in a vineyard, all right? Same idea. Turkey's under a hay wagon. If you've got infrastructure, use it. Uh, pigs in the rack and house in the winter, go ahead. Uh, chickens and, and rabbits in the rack and house. Rabbit, chicken, rabbit, chicken, racking, okay. Rabbits up above, chickens underneath. All right, vertical space again, symbiotic relationships. The chicken scratching through the bedding and decomposing that with aeration. Go ahead. Um, so the rabbits have their bunnies and then they come out. Go ahead. These are meat rabbits, by the way. If you don't like chickens under them, you can have pigs under them. Go ahead. And then the bunnies come out. Go ahead. Into the hairpins, which are slatted floor. Stop right there. Uh, slatted floor with the rabbits. The rabbits pick up 75% of their diet off the pasture. We just move them every day to a fresh spot. The slats keep the rabbits from being able to dig out. Go ahead. And uh, here's Daniel processing this, our son Daniel. Uh, I know his shirt there says Jerry, but we get these shirts from the old uniform store, you know, where people die or get fired and get them for about 50 cents. The IRS lets you deduct the full cost of clothes if it has a name on it. It doesn't say it has to be your name, it just has to be a name. So when you come and visit, I might come out and I might be Juan or Pedro or Harry or whatever, you know. But the acid test is the health and vigor and vitality of that rabbit. Go ahead. So he checks for that. The cats get in it. Go ahead. Just run on through. Now we go to the chickens. This is the brooder house. Just keep running right on through the shot. Uh, this is the brooder house with deep bedding, nipple waterers uh, for the chicks. They find them, of course. They're very clean. And this is deep bedding. This is real deep bedding. We never fumigate. We never chlorinate. We never vaccinate or medicate. Uh, the birds just scratch through the, the grubs and the deep bedding. And uh, have a lot of extra to do. And so that it just keep moving. Yeah, 14 days then to 15 days we come in and catch them up and bring them out into the field and put them into floorless 10 by 12 by 2 foot high field shelters or field schooners. Go ahead. First day in the field, last day in the field. You see how they've grown. We move them every day with a little dolly, slip it under one edge, go to the back end, pull it. The chickens walk to the next spot. You've got their salad bar vacated, and it's all uh, the birds get a fresh place to, to lounge every day. Move them every morning when the dew is on and everything's sparkling. It's been in a crisper all night. Stimulates the chickens to eat as much as they possibly can, uh, so they get to eat all they possibly uh, all, all the grass they possibly can, along with the local GMO-free grain. Uh, simple industry waterers, we uh, go ahead, keep going, we, uh, we dip and carry the water. This is coming, of course, gravity-fed from the ponds up in the top of the mountain with no electricity and no pump. And, um, of course, we, we just carry. Now we go to turkeys. Hold up a minute. Now, the turkeys, now they're a different story. The turkeys, if you've ever tried to raise a turkey, uh, the thing, interesting thing about a turkey is that a baby turkey, which is called a poult, a chick is a chicken and a poult is a baby turkey, uh, poults have one uh, objective on their mind, and that is to figure out a new creative way to die. I mean, they don't call them turkeys for nothing. 
So, so these turkeys, uh, how we start them is we violate every rule book. We start them with the chicks. What we've learned is that as long as we have five, five, a ratio of five to one, five chick teachers to every one turkey student, there's enough teachers to teach the student how to stay alive. You know, to hover around. Uh, that's manure. That's corn. Uh, that's you know sawdust. That's water. You know, you kind of have to. Te- so at three weeks they go out into the field with the broilers, and at seven weeks they start you know in grace they start beating up on the broilers. So we put them in the netting. Go ahead. And this uh, this netting, of course, is the electrified stuff, the same stuff we use for the chickens. Go ahead. Uh, and we move them every couple of days to a new spot. Notice there's no dirt, and it's gorgeous. Now, stop right there. The thing is, uh, these tur- even when they get this big, these turkeys, they never really get the electricity. I mean, I mean, they never really get it. But as long as we start them early enough to not walk over the fence, they learn that their world has a boundary, and they don't try to, you know, uh, go through it the rest of their lives. But you can watch, you know, a grasshopper comes up on the outside, turkey looks at it, you know, he sticks his head through the fence, and he just, you can see him sitting there, you know, getting shocked. And they just, and he, you know, he reaches out and gets that grasshopper, you know, and then you can see him, you know, he'll come back in, and then he'll kind of walk off, okay? But this is gorgeous. It's beautiful. All right, go ahead. And uh, there's the guard dog again, Michael, the archangel. Okay, guarding them. All right, uh, simple infrastructure for shelter. Go ahead. This is, um, go ahead. This is the big gobbledygook. This is big enough for 400 birds. Scissor truss against, on, again, on a wagon chassis. And the turkeys can roost up in there. They get shelter. They can sleep up there at night. Go ahead. And uh, they do their stump speeches and political things and all the stuff that turkeys do. Go ahead. And this is family friendly, you see. This is stuff that the kids can be involved in because we don't feed our animals anything that we wouldn't eat. And so the, the, the children can be involved from day one. And develop their self-esteem, their need, uh, their their reason for being. Go ahead. So really, it's ballet in the pasture. The animals are doing all the work. We're just choreographing and and bringing in the stars to play the different roles that they play. So then, when the chickens are eight weeks old, they come into our little illegal processing shelter there. And um, go ahead. Uh, they we we back them up there. They go in first. They go into the uh, wheel of fortune, and. Uh, we do basically a kosher or halal uh, uh, kill with, with no electrocution, so the autonomic nervous system continues to function. Then they go into the scalder, they go into the picker, and then they go on through the surgery there, um, which by hand evisceration. Go ahead. And I want you to notice here, go ahead, I want you to notice the people, the culture of agriculture. See, we, uh, our modern industrial mechanical agriculture doesn't want anybody on the farms. But we want to put loving stewards, nurturers, back on the landscape to build this relational community that, that, that works together and, um, and has meaningful work to do, do. You get this many people working together like that in that kind of environment, it doesn't become a chore. It becomes a shindig. We don't do it every day, but, uh, you know, it becomes a party. Go ahead. And it gives us the chicken that's unbelievable in the world. Go ahead. And we compost all the guts right there on site instead of feeding them back to the chickens like the uh, industry does. Go ahead. And um, it all runs on biomass, on carbon. Go ahead. So we are always stockpiling carbon, and it's seasonal. There are cycles. We work hard in the summer. We take the winter off, and I can come to Berkeley and visit with all of you people. So it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful cyclical seasonal sprint, rest, sprint, rest. Again, periodic disturbance and then rest. Periodic disturbance and then rest. Okay? Go ahead. What we've done, though, is we've created a very... Uh, Im, uh, immunodeficient agriculture. There's the bottom. That's the industrial farm. Stop. Do not enter. You know, biosecurity zone. What this means is that our animals uh, have no immune system, so we can't let you come onto it. Top is our sign. Parking. We want people to come. And so, go ahead. So, uh, we want them to come and get in touch with their food system. Go ahead. This is my bride of 30 years. Teresa, take care of a customer in the sales building. Go ahead. Customer shopping in the, in the freezers. On the farm, Daniel, our son, taking care of a customer. Go ahead. Um, our daughter Rachel taking co- friends of customers around. These, these uh, stop right there. Uh, these kids are, um, are 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 playing with the rabbits. They're playing with the chicks. They're petting the cows. They're building a relationship with their food. 
You know, what we've done is we have shoved people away from food production, processing, distribution, and then you're supposed to just open a package and have this intimate experience. This, this you know, this becomes flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. And, and what do we know about it? Now, I mean, it's like prostitution food, like a one-night stand. Like, like where's the romance? So these, these, these kids are courting their food and sitting down with a relationship. And now we actually know there's new science to suggest that when you sit down and eat, if you know something about the food that you're eating, the, the story behind it, where it came from, your body actually excretes extra enzymes than digestive uh, enzymes to make it digest better. So the relationship is powerful, the connection. So go ahead. So we want people to come to the farm and get in touch with their food system. Go ahead. Build a relationship with their food supply. Go ahead. And, uh, and walk and talk and see the farm. We do food fairs. Uh, go ahead, stop. One of the favorite things we do at food fairs is we cook uh, little sample sausages on site, put them on toothpick, and hand them to the children of vegetarians. We love all of our vegetarians because as soon as they find out they can the best, the most efficacious way to save the planet is with pasture-based livestock. We all got a binge to make up for lost time. So, go ahead. So here we are putting together some orders in the buying club orders. Go ahead. We're almost done here. Uh, just simple infrastructure on the farm, walk-in coolers. I mean, it takes, uh, and we're putting together orders for our metropolitan uh, people, our restaurants. Go ahead. Keep, just keep going, moving on through. Um, we collaborate with other farmers who bring their complimentary stuff to go on the bus to go to the restaurant so we get uh, um, economies of scale and distribution. We bring out the chefs. Uh, once a year for Chef Appreciation Day to deepen their relationship, their story. And it takes people. It takes a lot of gifts and talents. Teresa's a, our, our, our accountant, and, and we'll spend all day watching a penny. Go ahead. And, um, and what it does is it creates this farm that romances the next generation into it, which is my definition of ultimate sustainability is what does it do to the next generation? Do they want to do what you're doing? Go ahead. But you have a bad day sometimes. I mean, things just don't work right. No matter what happens, sometimes things just aren't quite right. But if you'll continue to pursue the sacred path, the high road, the one that makes ecological, spiritual, and emotional sense, go ahead, you'll find your blessing. You'll find that cornucopia. Grace will step in, and you'll find your answer. Go ahead. It'll always involve people. This is the apprentice cottage. Go ahead. These are young people that come as apprentices and interns to learn these things so that at this stage of my life, I can leverage my experience on bright-eyed, bushy-tailed self-starters who complement and add zest and enthusiasm to our lives. Go ahead. And all this does is accrue to the farm a place that the children want to be a part of that, in fact, like the 4-H motto says, is good for my community, my country, my world. Ultimately, go ahead, ultimately, we're chasing a dream and a vision for a healed landscape, a healed community, healed bodies in our community, and happy dancing choreographed earthworms in the pasture. And as we pursue that sacred dream, we will bring other people around us to their dreams. And so I don't know what your dream is tonight, but I hope part of it is to heal the planet one bite at a time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. So we're going to invite Michael Pollan back up for a question and answer um, period. And in your pews, you will find some note cards. If you have a question, we're going to be coming around in a minute or two to collect those cards and bring them up. So once you finish writing your question, pass it to the center of the aisle. We're going to go, uh, what, till about uh, 810, 8.10, 8.10, okay, with questions to this. Then we're going to take like a five or ten minute break. Are you going to, you're not going to give me any break. We're going to go right, okay. Then we're, going to, then we're going to go right straight into the Christian ethics thing. I think we will stand up and take a stretch, though, okay. So, um, so we're going to go to about 8.10, then we'll go right into the second one. So Why don't we uh, have a seat? I think these schools right. are for us. Um, we really want to take your questions yeah. uh, for Joel. So please write some, and um, 
I'll, I'll just throw out one or two while we're uh, there's one right there waiting for them to collect. Yeah, hold them up when you've got a card, and somebody will come pick it up. And write plainly, please. Yeah, <laughs> and I'll edit them and and uh, and post them to Joel. But while we're waiting, Joel. Um, First of all, I hadn't seen this in a couple of years, and I haven't been on the farm in a couple of years, and I'm amazed at all the innovation. This process goes on. I mean, there's a yeah. lot of new elements. Uh, sure does. And that was kind of exciting for me to see. Um, I guess I, I want to ask you a question of, about scale. Um, you know, the, the logic of this seems so undeniable and so compelling uh, that you could use sunlight and grass and, these, and this mix of species to, to generate... Uh, food and heal the planet at the same time. Right. Why isn't this the general case? Why aren't there thousands of polyface farms? Well, that's a great question, and I, I guess I mean, there are a lot of ways to go to it. Certainly, for one thing, one one answer is that this takes this takes a tremendous amount of artistry. It's not just cookie cutter. You know, move the cows March 10th from field A to field B. Um, you know, every farm is different. Every pasture is a little different. You know, amount of grass, amount of amount of cow days that pasture will produce, and so um, uh, there's there's just there's a tr- it looks real simple, but that's what makes it elegant. Uh, you know, as humans, we tend to make simple things complex, mm-hmm. and um, and so I think that that's the biggest problem is that it that. Can you it, teach it, that it artistry, complex. do you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, our apprentices and interns are, are, are uh, grabbing it uh, hands down. Now, you do have to be immersed in it, it's, it's, and you can get it out of a book, but if you just get it out of a book, you're going to go through some mistakes. Right. And, uh, and, you know, that, that Peter Drucker, uh, you know, uh, slow of despair, and then you come up to the other end, uh, a lot of people can't handle the inertial... Oh, I can't get the charger to work. I can't get the fence to stay up. I can't get the predators out. And so what you're seeing here are 50 years of mistakes. Right, trial and error. Yeah. Trial and and error. I mean, I'm not, I'm not uh, going to entertain everybody with all of our mistakes because that gets <laughs> depressing. <laughs> so, but, but are there things that could be done to encourage more of this farming? I mean, could this kind of teaching go on in agricultural colleges? Could there be government policies that would encourage this or at least not discourage it? Right, right. Well, for sure, uh, the you know the government policy that would help the best would to just would be to stop subsidizing the competition, mm-hmm. so so that there are so so that the true costs are are there. You know, um, uh, interestingly, we we uh, did an energy audit a couple of years ago when the energy prices really really spiked, and uh, of course it, you know got everybody's attention. And we did an audit, and we found that uh, diesel could go to over $8 a gallon, and it wouldn't seriously affect us. Because you use so little of it. Be, be, because we use so little of it compared to, you know, sales. Uh, the average farm, 50, 50, almost 50% of their expense is diesel. On uh, For us, it's only five, less than 5%. So that's a huge difference. I mean, we... So if we were paying the true cost of yes. fossil fuel energy, your kind of farming would be more competitive. Absolutely. And, and so that's one reason why, for me, uh, I'm okay with a non-cheap energy policy. Uh, you know, it's disturbing at the outset. You know, nobody, yeah. it's disturbing. But um, that would be the, um, the ashes that led to a phoenix out the other end. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, we, yeah, we need that. We, we need some ashes right. to get a phoenix. Right. Um, this will this will point this will uh, address another part of the the policy question. You mentioned that, uh, and this is a question from the audience. Uh, a few of the pieces of your farm are illegal, and you wrote a book called mm-hmm. "Everything I Want to Do Is Illegal." Right. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Uh, without without getting into trouble. <laughs> without getting into trouble. Um, well, to tell you the truth, you know, we, we actually don't know. This, this Ill- illegality is so fluid right now, we don't know what parts are all illegal and what parts aren't. Um, so it's a little bit funny, but um, uh, I will tell you this. I've been in California now all week, and I've heard from numerous farmers uh, about uh, somebody might be able to tell us this, this farm here locally that got an $18,000 fine for having apprentices. Um, this is real serious. Because where are these young people going to learn these things except to be immersed in it, you know, out on a farm? But uh, in apprentice um, 
can't justify a full-time salary because they make a pile of mistakes. And, um, and so you have to go through a couple months of, of, of you know, a period. And um, so the, the apprentices, of course, the whole labor thing is becoming a, a real critical uh, factor. That, that's one element. Uh, another one, you know, we would love to cure our own bacon and sausage and things like that on the farm, um, but it's illegal without a, and a federal inspected, you know, curing room. And um, so we pay $5 a pound to get it cured that we could do for 50 cents a pound if we could do it at the farm. And it goes up and down the interstate half a dozen times to mm-hmm. these different facilities to get done. So when people wonder, you know, why is your food so expensive? It's generally not because of cost of production. It's because of the cost of compliance with food police regulations that um, that create non-scalable requirements uh, on on the farm. Um, I, I've been a proponent of just empirical testing. Let us take a swab test. You know, send it in for a culture, and if we're clean, we're clean. I mean, if we really just want clean food, if I can gut a chicken in the kitchen sink and make it as clean as Tyson can, who cares if it was gutted in the chicken ki- in the chicken sink in the kitchen ki- <laughs> chicken kitchen chicken kitchen sink? Um, uh, a lot of people don't understand that isn't the way it's done though, right now. Right. I mean that that you have to follow a, a recipe book, right? Yeah, of, 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 of infrastructure and right. bathrooms and walls and lumens and and you know. All this other stuff. So they're. So you're saying set thresholds for yeah, contamination. Set, absolutely, set set thresholds, set benchmarks, and if we're clean, we're clean. Just test it. You know, if we're clean, we're clean. Um, the so industry doesn't want to go that way. The industry doesn't want to go that Why way. Uh, well, because the inspectors don't want to lose their jobs. What do you mean? Uh, the uh, there would be no jobs for inspectors. there would be no jobs for inspectors because you would just take you would just take your uh, test. You know, send it in, or or send it to a little R two D two machine or something. You know, and um, and it would scan it, and you're you know, and you're done. Um, I mean, I, I've mentioned this numerous times to our federal inspector, and he says, "Well, that would absolutely work." But he said, "Then I'd be out of a job, so I'm opposed to it." <laughs> so so you know, so you have a you have a tremendous amount of that's what I. It, it seems simple, but it's not just simple yeah. because you've got a lot of powerful people that are you know wanting to yeah. hold on to their. Positions. Now, we've been having a big debate in this country about food safety, as you know, and you've been part of that debate. Um, and raw milk is a real kind of flashpoint. Um, that's a product that a lot of people want, uh, but is illegal in many places. Right. Do you think we have a right to, to eat anything we want or buy anything we want? Or Well, that's a loaded question. Uh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. I think, we have, I think we have an absolute right. I think when the government gets between my lips and my throat, that's an invasion of privacy. <laughs> Now, just to show you my attempt at consistency sitting in this place, that also means I am completely in favor of legalization of all drugs. It's not too controversial in this sense. No, because a government that can tell you you can't smoke dope can also tell you you can't drink raw milk. I mean, if we, if we, don't, if we don't ultimately have autonomy over our own bodies over our own selves, what good is it to have the right to worship, speak, um, own guns, if we don't have the right to feed our three trillion member internal bacterial community, it's food to fuel us if we want to go shoot, pray, and preach. Um. One practical question. Somebody wanted to know, what's the minimum amount of land you could do a system like this? Minimum amount of land to do a system like this. Well, if you want to put cows in it, then, you know, then you need to get on up there, I think, you know, into the, you know, five to ten acres. But if you exclude the cow and perhaps the pig and stay with the small stock, you know, turkeys, chickens, rabbits, guinea pigs, you know, you could grace escargot, you know, that would work here. <laughs> um, then, then certainly, it becomes almost as small as you can imagine, uh, because you can stack, you can layer, you can have, you know, bees and stackable enterprises. Uh, you can trellis, you can use shady spots, you can terrace. I mean, 
there's no end to the kinds of microsites that you can leverage with with vertical and 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 you know creative uh, synergy with with plants animals plants plants animals animals. So it's really just the choice of species that you. Absolutely, yeah. It's just it's just the mix that you like. I always tell people they ask what you want to grow. What what should I grow? I say grow what you like. You know, if you can't sell it, you can always eat your way through it. <laughs> now let's look at the scale in the other direction. Um, okay. Here's a question. Uh, how do you believe your vision of farming translates to providing food for a nation diverse in geography and large in size? 300 million people is a lot more than the Shenandoah Valley population. Oh, absolutely. Oh, that's one of my uh, – the, the, the basic underpinnings of this question is can we feed the world? Right, right. That's the number one question I get all the time. Me can too. we feed the world? Because ultimately, for us to sit here and, uh, and give an apologetic for this system, if it requires killing half the world, that's not a very – you know, high plane to be on. Okay. So, um, very, very quickly. Uh, first of all, right now in the world, 50% of all human edible food never gets eaten. It spoils. A lot of that spoilage is due to uh, poor infrastructure like roads to get Red Cross trucks across it, socio-political things like uh, machine gun toting warlords not letting a Red Cross truck to pass it, uh, most of it is, is a long-time uh, warehousing, uh, where buy, best buy, sell buy, use by dates get uh, done, uh, uh, you know, uh, bouncing blemishes, uh, that sort of thing. So 50% of the world's food supply uh, never gets eaten. If, if anybody here could snap their fingers and double the world's food production tomorrow, it wouldn't affect one hungry person in the world. Nobody's going hungry because there's not enough food. It's distribution, but distribution is not production. Um, so the fact is, if we went to a more localized system where there wasn't the degree of spoilage, we, we could do a lot more with less. That's number one. Number two is <clears throat> the U.S. has 35 million acres of lawn. 